0: I was reminded while Don prayed about a couple things that I should mention to you. Um, Tuesday is the day that Mike and Jenny and uh, Robbie and Timothy leave to return to Papua New Guinea, so today is their last Sunday that they will be with us. Be sure to wish them well. And uh, secondly, as he was praying for the Scherzer family, it would be good for us to remember Uh, Steve and Barb Scherzer are here with us this morning, our outreach partners, who uh, normally at this time of the morning would be in Alabama at church, and uh, they're here in our our church, and um, it's good to see them. Um, It is bittersweet circumstances under which we see them, but uh, we're glad to have them with us today. Tim Allen, the comedian Tim Allen, was interviewed a couple of years ago by uh, AARP, which tells you how old Tim Allen is. Uh, They asked uh, Tim Allen about his father. His father was killed tragically when Tim was 11 years old. His dad had been to a college football game. He was coming home, and a drunk driver swerved into his lane, and there was an accident, and his father was killed. Uh, Tim Allen said, uh, It has been 50 years since that night, but it changed everything forever. He said, part of me still doesn't trust that everything will work out all right. I knew my father was dead, but I was never satisfied with why he was dead. I wanted answers that minute from God. Do you think this is funny? Do you think this is necessary? And I've had a tumultuous relationship with my creator ever since. I'm drawn to that phrase. I have a tumultuous relationship with my creator. I think that phrase would resonate with a lot of people. It resonates with those who've had some sort of experience. They've seen something, felt something, heard something, endured something that makes them ask questions, hard questions, good questions often. The Bible does not shy away from hard questions. In fact, one-third of the New Testament was written to a man who had some significant questions, some concerns, maybe even uh, some doubts about what he had heard about Jesus Christ. He didn't have the same questions that Tim Allen has, uh, but they're equally important. They're disquieting questions. Today we're going to launch a a study of a portion of this question-answering material in the New Testament. It's in a book that we call Acts. In the second century, it got its full official name, the Acts of the Apostles. It really should be called some Acts of a couple apostles, but we'll let that go. And I want you to turn there with me this morning, if you would, to the book of Acts. Now, while you're doing that, uh, while you're turning there, uh, doing that, let me uh, issue my usual disclaimer when we start a series like this. This is especially important for those of you who are uh, visiting uh, with us. Uh, we normally, our normal practice is to walk systematically through books of the Bible. And by my recollection, this is the 20th book of the Bible that I have taken you through. or this, We're starting here, this 20th book this morning. And usually what I do when we start books is um, I start with an introduction like what you're going to hear this morning. It's going to be a li- little bit more information than inspiration more of a uh, a lecture than a sermon, my hope is to help you, to give you a few tools so that you can comfortably read this book and and get a broad view of where it is situated in the Bible and the New Testament story. Uh, I want to lay out some ideas, some themes uh, and structures that are going to guide us as we go. So let's begin here in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, where we find the identity of the questioner, the one with the... um, uh, concerns. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Now immediately here, we have a problem. Actually, it's not really a problem. Uh, we just have a need for more information. What we discover in the first verse is, there is a former book. This is a sequel. You have a sequel in your hands. Now if you're new to the Bible, you, you might not know this, uh, but the book of Acts is the sequel to the book of Luke. Originally, they traveled around the Mediterranean Sea together. Uh, they were written together by the same author for the same purpose to the same person. And actually, together, these two books represent one-third of the New Testament. Uh, When I take my children downtown to the library, I take them up to the children's section on the second floor, and there's a collection of books, the series books, all the books that are in series. Something has happened since they published children's books when I was a child. There was only one series when I was a child. It was by Laura Ingalls Wilder. But now there are 500 series of books, and the library very carefully puts them in one section, and they put a little red sticker on all of those books, all those series books, and they actually number them in that little sticker they put. One, two, three, four. Very handy for compulsive people like me. Because when I find a new series that I think my children might like to read, of course, what do I go find? Number one. Book number one. You have to start at the beginning. Thankfully, my children are not that concerned. It bothers me sometimes when they come home and they say, Yeah, I found this book. It's number three. (laughs) Number three? Why are you reading number three? Start with number one you learn certain characters, you learn certain plots, certain things will happen that you might need to know about later. You start with number one. I'm sorry, this morning we're starting with number two. Well, uh, to understand the book of Acts, so what I actually actually want to do is to introduce it, is I want to go back with you for a moment to the beginning of Luke. So Flip back with me, if you would. We're going to actually spend almost all of our time in Luke 1, 1 to 4, because Luke is volume number one of this two-volume work. And in the first four verses of Luke chapter 1, Luke tells us why he wrote his book. So let's look at what it says here, Luke 1, verse 1. Verse 4 is the purpose statement. Here is why Luke and Acts exist. Theophilus has heard about Jesus and he believes. But he has some questions. And he needs assurance. He needs certainty. We're going to talk about that word certainty uh, in, in a minute. But think with me just for a second about what this verse says about the author. We'll circle back to that in a minute too. But what does it say about the author? Two things this passage says. First, it tells us he was not an eyewitness to what had happened. He was not an eyewitness to uh, Jesus Christ. He did not see Christ in the flesh. Matthew did. John did. Uh, but the author here did not. He, he's not an eyewitness. Because he was not an eyewitness, he did research. He says, I have carefully investigated everything. This is all we have in the book of Luke uh, about the author of this gospel. Um, is that he wasn't an eyewitness, but he was a researcher. He carefully investigated. It's interesting. Uh, in the book of Acts, the author will show up a little bit in sections that, that we call the we sections of, of Acts. Not we, like I'm going down a slide. We, but we as in plural, all of us, us guys. Um, uh, he, he apparently saw some of the things that were happening in Luke, uh, Acts, but he did not witness the things that were happening in Luke. This careful investigation. Think about here how, what this is telling us about how the Bible is put together. We believe that all scripture is inspired by God. It's given by inspiration. The Holy Spirit moved through uh, people so that they wrote God's words. But think about the varieties of ways that happen. There are times in the Bible where God said to a prophet, write this down. And we just went through the book of Leviticus, didn't we? And in Leviticus, God says over and over again, Moses, write this down. And Moses writes there are sometimes that that the Holy Spirit works um, through the very careful thinking and imagination and uh, uh, processes, creative process of of a person. Think of how Solomon composed Proverbs. He thought very carefully. He arranged them artistically, and the Holy Spirit was working through him. Here, in the Gospel of Luke, the Holy Spirit is working through uh, this author so that he his careful investigation and his ordered account comes and produces this book of Scripture. This is a researched book. Uh, We can tell, actually, as you read the book, that he talked to eyewitnesses. Probably he spent a good bit of time with Mary, the mother of our Lord. That's why in the beginning of Luke, so much of the story is told from Mary's perspective. Careful investigation and and research. Now, we have here a few details about the recipient. His name, or he's called here at least, Theophilus. Uh, I don't know if that's his real name. Many people don't think it is. Theophilus is a term that means lover of God. Uh, the author calls him most excellent Theophilus. At the end of Acts, he's going to talk to two Roman governors. Paul's going to describe, uh, Paul's addressing uh, the two Roman governors, and he calls them most excellent Festus and most excellent uh um, Felix. You wonder here, is most excellent, this phrase here, is this a technical term? Is Theophilus high up in the Roman bureaucracy? Is he someone with a a great deal of influence and power who has become a follower of Jesus, but he has questions? His questions about what what does this, these news that I've heard about Jesus, what exactly does it all mean? Now, from the content of the book of Acts, I think we can piece together some of the questions that Theophilus has. Um, if we were going through Luke, we'd have a different set of questions. But based on the content in the book of Acts, the points that the author of Acts hits, I think these are some of the questions that Theophilus is wondering about. Let me just mention four of them. First of all, he wants to know maybe, do Jews and Gentiles really belong together in one community? Do Jews and Gentiles really belong together in one community? It seems like Theophilus is familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. He seems to have welcomed them as truth from God. And and he knows, you read the Old Testament, Jews are to be distinct. They are to maintain their ethnic separation as the people of God. But that is not what happened in the early church. And Theophilus, these Christians, they're suffering. are suffering a lot. Maybe they're suffering because it wasn't God's intention that Jews and Gentiles should be together in one community. Do they really belong together? Well, the second question is, is kind of related to the first here. If the Jews really are God's chosen people, why do most of them reject Jesus? If if they're really God's chosen people, why are they rejecting Jesus? If, if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah... Why aren't there more Jewish followers? That's a question that actually we could ask today, isn't it? Here's another question. Theophilus might be pondering, what's the connection between God's promises in the Old Testament and what's happening now? Again, Theophilus seems to know his Old Testament. Has God forgotten about the promises that He made to Abraham and to David? Is this new community, this new church, is this is this church here uh, replaced Israel in God's plans? Um, is God going to fulfill the promises that He made? I think that's why in chapter one, they, they the disciples say to Jesus, "Are you going to restore the kingdom now?" They want to know about the kingdom of Israel. What is going on with the kingdom? Theophilus want, wants to know. Question number four: Why do so many people think that Christianity is dangerous? Why do so many people think that Christianity is dangerous? Why you read Acts and you see persecution and riots and arrests. People are plotting against Christians. There's trials. Why are so many people adamantly opposed to Jesus? Now, by asking this question, and if if this is one of the issues that's running through Theophilus' mind, uh, then we see that one of the ways in which we're a a bit disconnected from this original setting. I want you to think for a minute about your experience. Do the people that you know the friends that you have, uh, your co-workers, your, your family members, do they think that Christianity is dangerous? I don't think that's the majority uh, uh, perspective of people in the Western world. This is changing. Um, th- there are people who talk this way. Remember Christian, uh, Christopher Hitchens a few uh, years ago wrote a best-selling book. It was called God is Not Great, Why Religion Poisons Everything. He, he, it was a best-selling book, but most people don't think in those terms that Christianity is dangerous. That day, perhaps, is coming, hmm. but now is it the case? Do you remember last week I, I shared about Russell Moore's appearance on um, um, uh, CBS News on Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning, he was there. And he talked in that interview about the, the collapse of cultural Christianity. Uh, it used to be in order to be a good citizen, you had to be a member of a church or a synagogue. That was just part of being a good member of the community. And it didn't, it didn't matter really whether you believed, you just had to go. And that seems to be collapsing. It seems to be. It is collapsing in our culture, this cultural Christianity. And Russell Moore says that one of the benefits of that is that followers of Christ who remain will have the freedom to be authentically strange in the world and uphold the authentically strange things that the Bible teaches. The authentically strange, for that you can read now, dangerous. Remember for just a moment what these first witnesses of Jesus actually proclaimed about him. Jesus was a condemned criminal. He was executed by the Romans. If Theophilus really was a government official, Jesus was executed for treason by one of his fellow bureaucrats. How anxious do you think the sheriff of Lancaster County would be to follow, become a follower of a criminal who was imprisoned in uh, uh, Chester County Jail? Jesus was not from Rome. He hadn't been to the best schools. He was not from a pre- prestigious family. He was not taught by the greatest philosophers. He was from a broken country uh, in an unsettled people who always seemed to be just one breath away from rebellion against Rome, the most stable and peaceful country or a peace establishing country that had ever existed on the planet. And Theophilus was a member of that country and uh, Jesus followers want you to join. Him and following him. Huh. How excited would you be if your daughter came home and said that she wanted to become a disciple of a man that had just been executed by uh, the state of Kansas, but uh, she believed he was risen from the dead? Would you be very excited about that? And all you hear about this new religion she comes home and says she's going to follow is that its leaders have been arrested and that every city they go to, uh, their message brings moral and religious and economic upheaval. <laughs> Jesus' followers are a threat to the world that you know. How excited would you be if one of your children came home and said they wanted to follow somebody like that? I tried to think of a, of a contemporary example of this. It's it's difficult. This is my best effort, and it's not perfect. Uh, Lancaster County is is relatively uh, conservative place. This is an example that would not work in a lot of places, uh, but I, I don't think I'm stretching it too much. If you do, you're still welcome here, but just say conservative Lancaster County, most people didn't have a real high opinion, I don't think, of the Occupy movement. Remember, uh, they were, some of you were groaning. Okay, at least I'm in the right track, right? Okay, um, so if you do, um, I'm trying to make a point. It's a imperfect illustration. God bless you. Okay, so anyway, um, what would happen if, if all of a sudden you're, you're, one of your children came home and said, I'm going to join the Occupy movement because I think they're right? You have questions, wouldn't you, about that? theophilus has some theological questions he has some practical questions if the god of the old testament has apparently failed the jews and it seems like he has then how do we know that he can be trusted that i can trust him if he didn't keep his promises to abraham and david and moses how can how can i trust him and since the followers of jesus want to turn the world upside down should i really follow them wholeheartedly should i really join them I, I, Acts is pointing us in the direction of why some of the reasons that Theophilus needs reassurance. And actually, Theophilus seems to understand the calls of Christ pretty well. Because if you think about them carefully, even in conservative Lancaster County, the gospel, the message about Jesus, is dangerous, it's threatening. If you're if you're visiting with us, hopefully this morning you were given a, a little bag uh, by one of our ushers as you came in. They, um, you might have tried to sneak by, but they're they're trained. So um, hopefully you, you got one. In, inside there's this little booklet, and, and it's called Two Ways to Live. Jesus spoke it in terms of this. There being two ways to live. There's two paths, two doors. Two ways to live. You can live as if you are the master of your life, as if you have the freedom and the power and the wisdom to decide everything for your life. Or you can submit to God's ways. This is the way he designed life to be lived. Human beings have a perfect record of choosing their own way, but it doesn't work very well. If you remember in the garden, Adam and Eve, there they were in the garden and God said, don't eat the fruit. <laughs> that day was a, when, when they chose to eat, it was a lot more than about dinner. Adam and Eve were establishing their right to self-determination, their independence. I'm gonna define myself, I'm gonna eat what I want, I don't care what you say. Adam and Eve chose their own way and they lost the blessings, the joy, the privileges of walking with God. You can have your own way. The problem is that's all you get. Your way. In John chapter 3 and 4, Jesus had some significant conversations with two very different people. In John 3, he spoke of the man whose who's, his way was the way of religion. I'm going to choose my own way. I'm going to follow the rules. And I'm going to make myself right by following the rules. And he didn't have a clue about what it means to have a real relationship with God. The other person Jesus spoke to was a woman who had married five different men. What was she looking for in all of those beds? A relationship that would make life better? Jesus challenges your competence to make your own life work. Jesus came to rescue you from your own way and he invites you to follow him in his way. (laughs) Do you see how Christianity is dangerous? He rescued you because the rebellion, the consequences of this rebellion against God of choosing your own way are dire death, eternal death, bearing the wrath of the righteous God. He bore that wrath on the cross when he died and then he rose again. And, and turning to him by faith, we find life and forgiveness, the opportunity of following Christ closely, walking with him in his way. The gospel is dangerous because it is a threat to your right to self-determination it threatens your right to uh, determine your own life to set out your own independence Jesus he always if you've walked with him for a long time don't you know this Jesus calls you constantly away from what you think will satisfy you calls you away to something better far better Actually, one of the ways I've said this before, I'm sure. One of the ways that you can tell your relationship with Christ is real is by how much He turns your world upside down, by how much you feel that pull. And Theophilus wonders about this. Judging by the shape of the Book of Acts, those are some of the questions that Theophilus would wonder. Can I can I mention just a couple briefly of questions that we have? Maybe uh, they're not the same exactly as Theophilus's, but but. There are people who have the same questions, uh, there are similar questions, things that they need assurance or certainty about. Here, here's just two of them. Uh, we wonder first, is the Bible true? Can we trust what it says about God, about Jesus? What it means to be about, uh, to be human? Can we trust what, what the Bible says about uh, salvation, about eternity? You can turn your television on at any time of day and find some so-called expert who will tell you why the Bible is not trustworthy. Or why you shouldn't listen to what it what it says. We're going to talk about the historicity of Acts in, in just a couple of minutes. There's another actually more pressing question, I think, in our culture than can we trust the Bible? Uh, or is the Bible true? The the more pressing question actually is, can we trust what the Bible says about sex? Can we trust what the Bible says about sex? I'm sorry if you don't want to write that word. I left that blank. <laughs> so um, more than sex really here. The issue is, um, what's God's design for what it means to be male and and female? And uh, the Bible encourages us to embrace manhood and and womanhood as part of God's design. And the Bible says that sex isn't for marriage between a man and a woman. It doesn't matter whether you're heterosexual or homosexual, that sounds like an impossible standard. Can we really trust what the Bible says when it talks about sex? And so we need, as Luke 1.4 says, with Theophilus, we need certainty. And that word certainty is a translation of a wonderful little Greek word, Asphalion. Asphalion. I learned a lot about this word by listening to a, a message that John Piper preached about these, these four verses. Certainty. Asphalion. It's not just uh, intellectual certainty. It's not just knowing something up here. It is rock-solid, stable confidence. Stability, safety, steadfastness. It's used two other times in the New Testament. In Acts 5.23, it refers to a prison. We found the jail locked securely, securely locked. It was asphalion. And then it's used in 1 Thessalonians 5. False prophets are proclaiming, hey, there's peace, there's safety. That's the word, asphalion. There's security in the world. That's what false prophets are saying. Luke wants Theophilus to know these things with absolute certainty, to know them as settled, that they're confidence-worthy truths. Piper refers to this as knowing things like you know mountains in distinction to knowing things like you know clouds. You look up and you see clouds. You know that they're there, but what a wind can just blow them away and they'll dissipate, be gone. No one builds their lives around clouds, but you do build your life around a mountain. It's secure. It's stable. You 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 build its certainty into your life. In Luke, the mountains, in the Gospel of Luke, the mountains are about Jesus, about his identity and his work. In Acts, the mountain truths are about the church and what the church is supposed to be doing in the world. In these books, there is the argument that the truth contained here about Jesus and his work is worth changing your life for. It's worth risking your life for. It's worth changing who you sleep with and why. It's worth changing how you spend your money. It's worth changing how you raise your kids. It's worth changing... It's worth sending your children and your grandchildren thousands of miles away from your home. It's that solid. It's worth doing that for. Certainty. Author of Luke, Theophilus, I want you to have this level of certainty. And that's why he wrote this book. Now, there, there's a few more uh, standard introductory items that I should just run through briefly. I want to discuss them. Then I want to talk about the historical reliability of, of the book. And then I just want to, for a mention, uh, as we finish, mention some themes and acts. So I have a number of things more to talk about. Let, let's talk first about the author of, uh, circle back to the author. Uh, there have been no challengers to this from the beginning. People identified Luke as the author of this book. Luke is a shortened uh, form of a, a, um, a Greek name, Lucius or Lucian, something like that, Lucilius. Um, and Paul, in Colossians 4.14, calls this man the beloved doctor. I won't take you there, but there has been some man who who spent his life researching, trying to figure out which medical school, based on his vocabulary, which medical school Luke went to to get his medical training. (laughs) That'll be next week's sermon, so it'll be fascinating. You'll love it. Um, Now, the Gospels, we we think about this, it doesn't say anywhere here, Luke, Luke. Uh, Most of the Gospels, they're not written anonymously. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, their names are not in them, but they were not written anonymously. Everybody knew who wrote them, but they didn't put their names in them because Jesus is the main character. They don't want to detract from him at all. Tradition tells us that Luke was from Antioch, uh, a little bit north of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Uh, for a long time, the prevailing view was he was a Gentile. Some people are thinking maybe he was Jewish now. That's changing. He was an educated man because he was a doctor. Perhaps he was elite enough to do the sort of research that would call uh, for writing this book. He had to have money, time, and expertise enough to go around and talk to people and get them to tell them his stories and to have access to the official records so he could write this book. If that's the case, then both Theophilus and Luke are on a social st- Sphere higher than most of the early Christians. It's interesting if you think about that. Luke is the one who talks most about the poor and the forgotten. That was not his class, but that's where his, his heart was. Now, uh next here, the date of this book. Acts was probably written in the early sixties, um, maybe as early as sixty two um, AD or AD sixty two. There's boundaries around this. Follow me for just a minute as we think about this here. Uh, Can we pinpoint here where the gospel of Luke was written? Um, Luke was, many people think that Mark was the first gospel and that Luke may have used Mark to write his gospel. So Luke had to come after Mark and Acts has to come after Luke because Acts is the sequel. Makes sense, unless he's George Lucas right in Star Wars, but I don't think so. So, Acts is number two, Luke comes before, and Mark comes even first. So, after Mark, sometimes, so that pushes the date this way a little bit. Then, we wonder about the end of the book of Acts. Does the end of book the of book of Acts give us a date down, down this way? At the end of Acts, in Acts chapter 28, which we'll get to in 2016 or so. In Acts 28... Um, um, Lord willing. So uh, in Acts 28, Paul's in prison, and he hasn't been executed yet. Now we know that Paul was executed sometime in the 60s by Emperor Nero. So did Luke, some people say, well Luke stopped writing then about Paul because he didn't know what happened to Paul, so he had to have written it sometime in the 60s before Paul was executed. That's a good idea. That's a, that's a good suggestion. <laughs> Except there's people who come along and say... Yeah, but but Paul Acts isn't a biography of Paul. And Luke is actually celebrating more that the gospel made it to Rome through Paul. That's all he cares about is that the gospel made it to Rome. He doesn't really care what happened to Paul. He's just excited the gospel made it to Rome. So maybe Luke was looking back and just just wrote Acts and ended it there because the gospel, the main character of the book, had made it to where it was supposed to be going. That's possible. What's interesting, actually, is um, your view of when Acts was written has to do a lot with your understanding of the supernatural. Follow me again here for a minute. In AD 70, 70, something calamitous happened um, that Jesus had predicted. At the end of Matthew, at the end of Mark, at the end of Luke, Jesus makes these predictions about what's going to happen in the future, and they happened in A.D. 70. The the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. Redefined uh, the church, redefined Judaism, a calamitous event. It happened in A.D. 70. If you believe it's possible that Jesus could predict the future, then you have no problem saying that Luke wrote his gospel before A.D. 70. He wrote down Jesus' prophecies, and a few years later, woohoo, they came true, because Jesus can predict the future. If you don't believe in the supernatural, and you don't believe that Jesus has that ability, then you are inclined to say that Luke wrote his gospel after A.D. 70, and he just put these words in Jesus' mouth back here. Oh, well, let's think about that supernatural for just a minute here and your belief in it. Actually, it's it's related to how you understand the history uh, that's in the book of Acts. Luke tells us, the book of Acts tells us the origin of the church. It's history. It's selective history. Oh, we're going to find this out, right? Luke He drops some details, some really important things that I would like to know. In Acts chapter 12, Peter disappears from the scene. He's going to live for 25 more years. Luke mentions nothing about Peter. He's gone. Well, Luke, can you fill us in here on the details a little bit? Or uh, Paul, after he was converted, he goes into the wilderness. We don't know anything that he's doing in the wilderness. He shows up 10 years later serving and teaching. Where was he? What was he doing? Luke doesn't tell us this. It's not his purpose. Oh, Luke, driving me crazy. Well, it's selective history. And then, actually, one of the other elements in the the book of of Luke that's interesting is uh, speeches. How did Luke remember all these speeches? 35% of the book of Luke, uh, book of Acts, are speeches a huge amount. They're summaries, they're not transcripts, uh, but, but there they are. Now, what puzzles people about the book of Acts is that Luke puts two elements together that don't often go together in ancient religious texts. He puts together, number one, specific dates, places, and times, and people, specific people, specific places... And he puts together miracles. Those two things go together in the book of Acts. This frustrates modern people. If you don't believe in miracles, you would be inclined to put this category, this book, not in the category of history, but in the category of fiction, right? Luke made up this story. He called the Acts of the Apostles. He put all kinds of miracles in it because, of course, miracles don't really happen. It has to be fiction, um, and, and we read the book of Acts, and we're inspired by the mythical, metaphorical stories. Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. He didn't really ascend to heaven. But yes, he's still alive because he's alive in my heart. And Jesus lives because he's in my heart. And I know, and he's about body's in the tomb. But he's alive in my heart. That's not the way, though, Luke writes, is it? In the ancient world, ancient fiction never had this level of specificity. Ancient fiction always started out by saying, once upon a time in a land far, far away. No specific details. Modern fiction does give you specific details, right? You pick up a modern novel and it will take place in a city at a specific time. Modern fiction like that is only 300 years old. Ancient fiction, there were two groups and never the twain met. There was history with facts about people and naming names and dates and cities. And then there was magic, fiction and myth. Luke puts these two things together. And he is amazingly accurate in his history. He knows where cities are. He knows what the rulers in those cities are called. He knows who's been ruling and when. Sometimes scholars have tried to prove that Luke was wrong about various things. And you know what? Luke is always right and they always get proved wrong. And then he puts these facts that are always right, right next to a miracle. A healing of some kind. So incredibly frustrating for people who are skeptical about the supernatural. Listen, Luke actually believes that what he is writing is true, and he actually believed it happened. For him, it is just as factual that Festus was a Roman governor as that Jesus ascended into heaven. He believes both of them. The two are equally factual. The way Luke wrote his gospel, it leaves you with no, uh, his, his history. It leaves you with no choice. You either have to believe it or not believe it. You can't spin the miracles as inspirational myths, as metaphorical wonders. He expects you to understand that these things really happened, and thus you can have certainty about them. So let me just mention here as we finish some themes of this book quickly here we're going to spend the next uh, years unfolding these three themes first God's work in the world is founded on what Christ has done and empowered by the Holy Spirit God's work in the world is founded on what Christ has done and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Acts is a very Trinitarian book. It seems on the surface that the Holy Spirit is the one who dominates the book. It seems that way, and actually over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about uh, some of the issues related to the Holy Spirit, tongues and miracles and all those things as we move through. But what you read is that the Holy Spirit magnifies Christ. He's, he is, who is in this book, the exalted Lord. But all of this, Christ's exaltation and the Spirit's magnification is born in the sovereign will of the Father. Look here, I have a verse there from Acts 4.27. It's a great verse. Uh, See how Trinitarian this scene is. Uh, They're praying, so they're speaking to God, the churches. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. That is a beautiful verse. You should highlight that verse and spend hours thinking about that verse. not that marvelous? They did what you had decided would happen. That's great. I love that verse. Verse 29, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. God plans. Jesus is at the center of the work, being magnified, and the Holy Spirit enables them to speak boldly. Oh, as we read the book of Acts, may that be true of us. You know, we would delight in God's good plans and exalt with Jesus, the, uh, uh, the Savior now who has returned from the fight victorious and that we would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do that. That's what Acts helps us do. Second theme here, the church is a new community. The church is a new community. There's this tension, we're going to feel it in the book, between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And Luke wants to show us that God has kept his promises to the Jews and it was always his intention to welcome the Gentiles into this new community. He shows it through the geography in the book. The gospel starts in Jerusalem, people believe it, it moves into Gentile areas, and it ends up in Rome, that's where the gospel ends up. Um, There's Jews and Gentiles together in the church, and as we talk about the tensions that they had, we'll learn some things about our own tensions, and our own community, and God's design for us. Now the third theme here, the church's mission is to testify to Jesus. Jesus commissions the disciples in Acts 1 8. And the rest of the book is the unfolding story of how they preached in Jerusalem and in Judea and the rest of the world, the uttermost parts of the world. And they proclaimed it at great cost. It hurt them a lot to tell people about Jesus. Why did they do it if it was so painful? They did it because they had good news to tell Jesus Christ is risen from the dead have nothing better to tell you than that jesus christ rose from the dead and that is worth suffering for we're going to see in acts how the early followers of christ spoke to religious people and pagan people and intellectual people and superstitious people everyone needs to know how great jesus is it is life transforming truth that we are compelled to share And actually, that's the overflow of certainty, isn't it? Luke says to Theophilus, I want you to know the certainty of these things. And if you know them certainly, you will speak them. You you will join in God's purpose of exalting his risen son. Because we're certain, we speak, we testify, we witness. Let's pray, shall we? Father, in the days that are to come, we will have this book of Acts open to us um, according to your will and your good pleasure, and we are thankful to you for it. We are thankful that, uh, for the opportunity we will have to see, again, the Lord Christ exalted in the lives of Peter and Paul, and our hope is that we would join in that glad exaltation. Oh Lord, would you lay before us the possibility and the promise of of being involved in this great mission to tell people that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Would you open that possibility for us and unite us as a congregation in that great telling. Teach us, transform us, help us to study and think carefully in anticipation of, of this good book that is before us. Thank you for Luke and his willingness to be used uh, by you to uh, share these truths with us. Make us certain, rock solidly confident, we pray. We ask these things together in the name of Jesus saying, Amen.